0: Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or, There it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's life. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is. There also the vultures will be gathered. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the text before us this morning sounds a very solemn morning. There is tremendous joy to be found in Your Son, Jesus. There is a most fearful expectation of judgment for those who reject Him. I pray that You would, even this day, grant some people new hearts. Grant them repentance and faith. May they turn from their wicked ways to Jesus, through whom they can have their sins forgiven and be granted His perfect righteousness. Please help us to focus rightly this morning. There are so many things competing for our attention. May we focus in on the Gospel. Make us ambassadors who clearly know the truth and are able to handle the truth in the right way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but today marks the fifth anniversary of of, uh, Pulpit Freedom Sunday. Fifth anniversary of Pulpit Freedom Sunday. In response to more than 50 years of threats and intimidation by activist groups wielding the Johnson Amendment as a sword against the church, Alliance Defending Freedom began Pulpit Freedom Sunday in 2008. The goal of Pulpit Freedom Sunday is simple. To have the Johnson Amendment declared unconstitutional and once and for all remove the ability of the IRS to censor, or at least threaten to censor, what a pastor says from the pulpit. Alliance Defending Freedom is actively seeking to represent churches or pastors who are under investigation by the IRS for violating the Johnson Amendment by preaching biblical truth in a way that expresses support for or opposition to political parties and candidates. Alliance Defending Freedom represents all of its clients free of charge. Since 2008, pastors started agreeing that on this day they would preach purposefully political messages. 33 pastors from 22 different states participated in the first one in 2008. The participating pastors preached sermons that compared the positions held by candidates with what Scripture says about those issues. The pastors even made specific recommendations about those candidates, including recommendations about whether the congregation should vote for or against them. Finally, the pastors brought their sermons to the attention of the IRS by mailing them to the IRS, asking them to have, take issue with it. In 2009, the 33 pastors grew to 80. In 2010, nearly 100. Last year, in 2011, the number of participating pastors skyrocketed to 539. This year, last count, I saw 1,400 pastors had agreed to do the same thing, preaching messages, endorsing a particular candidate, and sending those tapes to the IRS. As of this date, none of these participating churches have had their tax exemption removed, nor have any of them received penalties from the IRS for what they said in their sermons. Now, I genuinely appreciate the idea behind these actions. These pastors are calling into question the Johnson Amendment. Only about 50 years ago, that thing went into place. He actually did it to censor some other nonprofit groups, but then it ended up lumping in churches as well. All under the threat that churches that preach messages that endorse particular candidates could have their tax-exempt 501c3 status removed. But freedoms of speech and religion are foundational to the establishment of our government. The First Amendment to the Constitution, figuring at the top of the Bill of Rights, states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. It doesn't take a brain surgeon, does it, to realize that once the government starts infringing on what can be said from the pulpit, it's not long until other things are of the same nature. We've seen today pushes towards what's called hate crime legislation. The idea that perhaps they could even use this to censor uh, pastors who speak against homosexuality, for example, and calling it sin or denouncing abortion as being sinful. I attended a breakfast with John MacArthur last week with Justin, Christian, and Seth. MacArthur made a very helpful observation about the deplorable situation that our country is in. There is a political party today whose party platform endorses that which God clearly rejects. The Democratic National Committee has published a platform that is in stark contrast with God's law found in the Bible. I pulled the following two items from the DNC party platform. You can look this up on the Internet. This is how it is published. Listen to these two. First one. The Democratic Party strongly and univocally supports Roe v. Wade and a woman's right to make decisions regarding her pregnancy, including a safe and legal abortion, regardless of her ability to pay. We oppose any and all efforts to weaken or undermine that right. Abortion is an intensely personal decision between a woman, her family, her doctor, and her clergy. There is no place for politicians or government to get in the way. Or how about this one? We support the right of all families to have equal respect, responsibilities, and protections under the law. We support marriage equality and support the movement to secure equal treatment under the law for same-sex couples. We oppose discriminatory federal and state constitutional amendments and other attempts to deny equal protection of the laws to committed same-sex couples who seek the same respect and responsibilities, note this, as other married couples. Now, by contrast, Listen to the GOP platform on the same issues. The Sanctity and Dignity of Human Life. Faithful to the self-evident truths enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, we assert the sanctity of human life and affirm that the unborn child has a fundamental individual right to life which cannot be infringed upon. We support a human life amendment to the Constitution and endorse legislation to make clear that the 14th Amendment's protections apply to unborn children. By the way, the 14th Amendment declares that, you know, all people within the jurisdiction of states should be given protection under the law. What they're saying is the 14th Amendment should not only apply to men and women and people of various colors, but should apply to people of all ages, including babies who are in the womb. We oppose using public revenues to promote or perform abortion or fund organizations which perform or advocate it and will not fund or subsidize health care, which includes abortion coverage. We support the appointment of judges who respect traditional family values and the sanctity of innocent human life. We oppose the non-consensual withholding or withdrawal of care or treatment, including food and water, from people with disabilities, including newborns, as well as the elderly and infirm, just as we oppose active and passive euthanasia and assisted suicide. Republican leadership has led the effort to prohibit the barbaric practice of partial birth abortion and permitted states to extend health care coverage to children before birth We urge Congress to strengthen the Born Alive Infant Protection Act by enacting appropriate civil and criminal penalties on health care providers who fail to provide treatment and care to an infant who survives an abortion, including every induction delivery where the death of the infant is intended. We salute those who provide them with counseling and adoption alternatives and empower them to choose life. And we take comfort in the tremendous increase in adoptions that has followed Republican legislative initiatives. How about that? How about this one on marriage? Entitled, A Sacred Contract, Defense of Marriage. Congressional Republicans took the lead in enacting the Defense of Marriage Act, affirming the right of states and the federal government not to recognize same-sex relationships licensed in other jurisdictions. The current administration's open defiance of this constitutional principle in its handling of immigration cases, in federal person personnel benefits, in allowing a same-sex marriage at a military base, and in refusing to defend DOMA in the courts makes a mockery of the President's inaugural oath. We commend the United States House of Representatives and State Attorneys General who have defended these laws when they have been attacked in the courts. We reaffirm our support for a constitutional amendment defining marriage as the union of one man and one woman. We applaud the citizens of the majority of states which have enshrined in their constitutions the traditional concept of marriage, and we support the campaigns underway in several other states to do so. I feel that after having stated both of those statements straight from the Democrat and Republican platforms, I think with both those in mind, you are... More than prepared to cast your vote for the candidates that represent the biblical stance on these issues. The truth is this is we 're seldom going to have the opportunity to wholeheartedly endorse a candidate. None of these men are perfect. all of them are flawed. There's a number of issues I would take with any one of them on any number of issues. we 're not going to agree on everything. But as Christians, we may have to differ over a good deal of economic and foreign policies, but I see no room for Christians to support candidates. Who failed to uphold a baby's right to life. Nor do I see a place for a Christian to honestly and sincerely claim that homosexuality should be considered marriage when the Bible outrightly denounces it. Now, I'll mention that there may be third party or independent candidates in some races that also deserve your consideration. But in those races between a Republican and Democrat, I do not see any room for Christians to support candidates who affirm the DNC's party platform. The bottom line is, you cannot affirm someone who advocates the killing of babies in the womb. How can you do that? You cannot support any position on marriage other than one man joined to one woman as God designed it. That these issues are front and center in the political discourse is just proof positive that we live in the midst of a world that has fallen. We're in the midst of a spiritual warfare. And immorality is running rampant in our country and across the world. Those who are the weakest in society should receive our protection and our aid, not destruction. And we cannot mess with God's design for marriage and the family without introducing all sorts of immediate and long-term problems and consequences. But most of all, what I appreciate about Pulpit Freedom Sunday is a statement that they made regarding what their goal really is. Listen to this. Our goal is not about turning churches into political machines. It is about restoring the right of pastors to speak freely from their pulpits about all matters included in Scripture, even when Scripture is deeply relevant to a pending election or the quality of a candidate for office. You see... What I'm most concerned about, while I believe the pastor should be able to speak freely on political issues, there's something that's far more important to be declared from pulpits this Sunday and every other one for that matter. The greater tragedy that happens is not when pulpits are devoid of political speech, but when pulpits are devoid of the gospel. The greater tragedy happens when the pulpit loses The sense of the glory of God and the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the need for the Holy Spirit to work upon hearts. You see, no matter what highs and lows we experience in the political process, there is a truth we must always keep in mind. Our hope does not rest in a particular president or in a particular political party to save us. Leaders rise and fall. Rulers come and go. We certainly can and should be good stewards of the freedoms and blessings that God has given us. But most important is the spread of the gospel. You see, the reason why is because the best freedom is freedom from the worst slavery. Let me say it again. The best freedom is freedom from the worst slavery. And there is no worse slavery than sin. There is no worse taskmaster than the devil. There is no worse condition than being under the foreboding wrath of God. Therefore, there is no sweeter deliverance and rescue than that salvation which Jesus Christ provides. He died in the place of sinners and grants repentance and forgiveness and faith and new life. No mayor, no governor, no senator, no representative, no president can give you that. Yes, we're to pray for our leaders. We pray for their salvation. We pray that God provides us and provides them with wisdom and prudence and that they would uphold justice. Yes, we're thankful for the amount of peace that most of us enjoy living in the United States. And we all have to admit there are many times when we take that for granted. We are blessed by the many people who serve in our military, protecting our freedoms and defending our country. But ultimately, our trust is not in the government to save us, because our problems go beyond the ability of the government to fix. Our ailment extends beyond the government's ability to heal. Our chief enemy is stronger than terrorists' and stronger than foreign powers. God has provided for the salvation our souls need in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, and in Him alone. You see, it's not for our lack of political savvy that the Lord is most displeased with us, but our lack of gospel preaching. We need to help people focus upon not the kingdoms of this world that are here today and gone tomorrow. How many massive kingdoms, powerhouses superpowers in the world, have come and gone. Have had their time upon the stage and now are hardly known at all. Can't help but think of Greece. Think that Greece at one time, the Greek Empire, extended in such a massive way and think of Greece today. I wonder about America. How long we will be at the position that we are in world affairs. But the point is this. All of this comes and and goes. We need... Kingdom perspective. We need to think about a kingdom that isn't here today and gone tomorrow, but about that kingdom that does not fade away. And for this, we have to have a right understanding of God's already and not yet kingdom. You see, Jesus had to provide a corrective to the religious leaders of his day, as well as a cautionary to his disciples. We see this in Luke 17. There are at least two dangers that confront us when thinking about God's kingdom. One is the danger of missing the kingdom of God as it already has arrived. There are many people looking for this thing and missing that it's already arrived. Pharisees were in that group for sure. A second danger, though, is that there is the danger of failing to recognize there is an aspect of the kingdom of God that is still future. A yet-to-be-fulfilled portion of the kingdom. Some will miss out on the coming kingdom because they fail to enter into it now. Others will miss out on it because they fail to recognize that much of the kingdom is still yet to come. This is not our home. So we have to combine this already and not yet element aspect to the kingdom. The occasion we come to in our gospel harmony provides us with wonderful instruction in this matter. It is important that we have a biblically informed view of history and understand God's plan regarding His kingdom. This was not only an important question during the days of Israel in the Old Testament. It wasn't only an important question during the days in life and ministry of Jesus Christ upon the earth but it impacts us today as well. You cannot escape some belief regarding where we are presently, how that fits into the historical sequence of events, and what's still yet to come in the future. You make decisions today with some thought regarding the future. It's inescapable. Let me illustrate that. If you were told by a doctor that today was your last day to live, you're diagnosed with a sickness that you're going to die in hours, I'm quite certain it would impact what you did today. It would. On the other hand, if you were told they were going to live, guaranteed, for another 900 years before dying, that too would impact today's choices and living. For most of us, though, we don't have this kind of information. Death will come upon most of us quite suddenly, oftentimes much quicker than we would expect or desire. Now, regardless of when we might die, God is working in perfect accordance with his own timetable to bring about the end of history. Countless prophecies, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, speak to this reality. So we're not we're not surprised that extensive studies have been done on consideration of future events. The thing that's alarming, though, is where a lot of those studies have ended. Some people have made such exacting detail in attempting to propose, as derived from biblical prophecy, exactly how things are going to go. Some of you have seen the charts, the charts in trying to describe how all these things are going to take place. Uh, Many a year has come and gone that has been predicted as the last year, as the end of human history. And then on the other hand, there are those who live as if the end will never come. Many youth make decisions from a position as if they were invincible. Many live as if death will never come. I think for some of them, who have come from an atheistic, naturalistic perspective. It's just because to consider death and the cessation of everything is so devoid of any hope and any joy and any happiness that it, it takes everything in the present and makes it meaningless that they just can't stand to think about it. So they won't. They refuse to think about it. But sticking your head in the sand won't change the reality that death is coming for all of us. It's appointed for men to die once and after this, Judgment. Well, Jesus has some wonderful instruction for us here in Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. His answer to the Pharisees exposes their failure to grasp what God's kingdom is all about and manifests that they themselves are actually on the outside of this kingdom. To have any hope of enjoying the kingdom of God in its fullness, You must enter it now. Let me say that again. In order to have any hope of enjoying the coming kingdom, you must enter into it now. You must experience the present nature of God's kingdom in order to enjoy the future aspect of God's kingdom. That's the warning to the Pharisees. Jesus warns his disciples, though, as well, about the suddenness of the consummation of the kingdom those who have entered into God's kingdom need not fear missing its conclusion. We'll see this together. Like lightning across the sky. It's not going to be hidden in some corner. Trying to unearth it. Hey, look, look. Jesus, come back. Come see this. No, 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 no. Like lightning strikes across the sky, so will the day of the Son of Man be. All those who are in Christ have no fear of that coming day. But there is a warning here to all those who seem to be on the fence regarding decision for Christ thinking that, well, I've got plenty of time. I've got plenty of time. Do you? Jesus refers to the suddenness of the consummation of the kingdom. And if you're not in the kingdom at present, when the future comes upon the present, then there's only judgment for you. What is undeniable is that God's kingdom, God's rule over His people in His place, enjoying His blessings, is already, verse 20 and 21, and not yet, verses 22 through 37. We need kingdom perspective. But to correct our vision, we must first come to grips with three maladies that are fatal to the human soul and then receive three correctives. Those are my two points here this morning. Three maladies. How do we develop kingdom perspective? We first recognize three maladies, three problems, three errors. And then we consider three correctives. First, let's consider the maladies. Three maladies. The first is a short-sighted vision a short sighted vision. Now, note this. In Luke's Gospel, the events that are immediately preceding these is Jesus healing ten lepers. Remember this? And the ten lepers go away, and all they're on their way to see the priest, to have him announce that they are clean, they're actually healed. But of the ten, only one turns around and comes running back to Jesus. The other nine continue on their way. Jesus remarks on this. He says, Is there a was there only one? Or, weren't there ten of you? Where are the other nine? And then not only is that astounding, but the nationality of the individual who turns around is astounding. He's a Samaritan. We're told the Samaritan turned around glorifying God and giving thanks to Jesus. He recognized Jesus' action as an action of God. And he gave glory to God as a result of it. Now, with that in mind, it makes this next question so perplexing, so stark. Here are the religious leaders. A Samaritan is able to recognize who Jesus is. He recognizes that he's doing works of God. And he comes back glorifying God. And meanwhile, then we have the Pharisees who come up to Jesus, saunter up to him and start questioning him as to when the kingdom of God was coming. The hard-heartedness of the Pharisees is so stark the Samaritan discerns the hand of God at work through Jesus, but the Pharisees reject Jesus. They refuse to trace the signs which Jesus performed to the only logical conclusion that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the very Son of God. So here they are searching for what is literally staring them in the face. Tell us, when is the Kingdom of God going to show up? And there He is in all His Splendor. Jesus, standing right there before them, Jesus replies, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Or will they say, look here or there? For look, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here, Jesus says. Anthony Hokema says the following. What Jesus is saying is that instead of looking for spectacular outward signs of the presence of a primarily political kingdom, the Pharisees ought to realize that the kingdom of God is in their midst right now, in the person of Christ Himself. And that faith in Him is necessary for entrance into that kingdom. You see, one of the maladies of a human fallen condition is our loss of real vision. There are a whole lot of people who are lost as gooses, but they think they see really clearly. These Pharisees are just like that. They prided themselves in their ability to see, and not only to see things in general, but see things spiritually. But meanwhile, we see that they're blind. They looked for God's kingdom to come with political pomp and circumstance, and therefore they rejected Jesus if mean, he didn't fit what they thought it would, how it would go? This Jesus, uh, born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger. This Jesus, son of a carpenter, growing up a Nazarene. This Jesus, the one conducting much of his earthly ministry away from Jerusalem in Galilee. This Jesus, the one welcoming children and foreigners and tax collectors and prostitutes. And the crippled and the diseased and the sick and the unclean and the needy? this? Jesus? You're saying, "He's the Messiah?" He didn't fit their expectations. Yet their curiosity compels them to ask Jesus his view on God's kingdom. Certainly this was a question milling about the religious leaders as much as they despise Jesus, they come asking Him His view on the kingdom of God. When is it coming? Give us some insight regarding this. It seems to either be one of two things. Either it's an admission that at least some part of them recognizes that Jesus has some amount of authority, at least as a prophet, or, probably more likely, it's an attempt to trip Jesus up into saying something that they could discredit Him with or take to Rome and say, this is what Jesus is trying to do. The Pharisees though, are not alone in their short-sightedness. People of our own day fall into the trap of nearsightedness. In our desire for a certain immediate outcome, we can lose sight of the bigger picture. There are many details of everyday life which seem to go so wrong. We just don't understand why God would order things the way that He does. We can grow impatient with things the way they are. We can fail to see how present hardships fit into a plan that works all things together for good. When evil men get away with their evil plots, when ungodly leaders rise to power, when murderers are not brought to justice, when the defenseless are abused and mistreated, we may find ourselves many times in those moments scratching our heads, pulling out our hair, weeping and crying. There are events which defy human explanation. But we're only seeing a part of the picture. You see, it's right for us to expect something better. Something far better is yet to come. It's just not here yet. Beware of things that being summed up the way that you think would be best. Because God is doing something far greater than your imagination can conceive. We recognize through Jesus' response to the Pharisees that they also seem to think that there is some scientific assessment or observation that would indicate the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Show us what it is. What are the tangible notices of this? They discount how God's kingdom had already come among them spiritually. You see, God's kingdom is everywhere that the Holy Spirit is. Every heart transformed by Him is an extension of God's kingdom. The Pharisees were looking for the wrong thing in the wrong way. They were oblivious to the fact that the kingdom was already operative in the person and work of Jesus and all those who were being transformed by His ministry. They suffered from short-sightedness. But not only that, but they had a second malady. They suffered from a fatal attraction. And we can see this present throughout the world today as well. After having given this corrective to the Pharisees, Jesus turns to His disciples and He warns them, when they... When they say to you, look there, or look here, don't follow after them. For the day of the Lord is not coming in subtleties. Just as lightning flashes from one end of the heavens to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. Jesus' coming return will be like lightning piercing the darkness. It will be obvious. We won't need anyone to tell us where Jesus is. He will totally and universally be revealed in His majesty. But the suddenness of his return will catch many off guard. The day will expose what is in men's hearts. He says in verses 31 through 33 that the one being on his housetop must not go down inside of his house to get his stuff. The one who's out in the field must not return back to his house to get his stuff. Now, imagine the picture if you were living in a in the countryside and an enemy army was upon you. In that moment, you go, oh, hey, let's go downstairs and get the flat screen TV and let's pick up some of my most valuable books. And oh, yeah, I want to grab my... No one's doing that. You're on the run. Judgment is there. Jesus says in this day, there'll be no going down into your house to get stuff. There'll be no turning back while you're in the field. This turn will catch many off guard. There's no time when an enemy army is invading and coming upon you. You must flee or you will perish. Jesus even says here, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. This caution reminds us of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Reminded of the judgment that fell on Sodom. God graciously determines to rescue Lot, his wife, and children out of Sodom. But while they're on their way escaping the city, Lot's wife turns around, looks back towards that city, and she's instantly turned into a pillar of salt. Genesis 19, verse 26. It's not just that she turned around. It's not just that, I mean, she could have stumbled and fallen and ended up looking that way. It was what was in Lot's wife's heart at that moment that she was judged for. You see, instead of fleeing from that God-forsaken city of immorality and thanking God for the deliverance, she was reluctant to leave. She continued longing for that city that she was being rescued from. And in pining after her old life, she forfeited true life. Desiring to live back in Sodom, she gave up life indeed. She forfeited true freedom and fell into judgment. Because while her body was moving away from Sodom, her heart was still there. You see, the lost soul desperately seeks for a way to preserve its own life. And by this, I mean, it amasses things for itself. It attempts to preserve its way of life at all costs. However, Jesus explains that all these sorts of efforts are futile. The one seeking to preserve what he or she has in this world will only find destruction. Just as much as a man who's on the top of his roof seeing an enemy coming, if he goes into the house to get his stuff, he hears more about his stuff in His life, ultimately. You see, the Pharisees are a great case in point. What have we seen as a repetitive theme with them? And we'll see it work its way out in coming weeks and years. What do we see going on here? The Pharisees were concerned for their own power, their own prestige, their own position, which led them to reject Christ and ultimately to deliver Him over to the Romans to be crucified. Their effort was to maintain their life, to maintain their freedom, to maintain their prestige, to maintain their power, their positions. And meanwhile, out of that effort, they rejected their true Savior. So it is for many today who foolishly reject Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. There are many who hold on to that which is not life at all, They're like the fool going back into the house to pick up a couple of trinkets when an enemy is upon them. There are many who have amassed for themselves stuff materialism. They've brought themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. They're in love with things that are killing them. Much like a hopelessly addicted drug addict might drug himself to death or an alcoholic might drink themselves to death. The very thing that's killing them has got their hearts fastened tightly. But it doesn't only have to be sinful or immoral things. Many spend their lives on the ordinary business of life. There are many eating and drinking and working and sleeping and marrying and being given in marriage. And all those things are fine. But when they're divorced from bringing glory to God, they're all empty. Many will spend their lives on earthly concerns, and they're going to ignore God's warnings to flee from the wrath to come, and God's invitations to find forgiveness and righteousness and life in His Son. The danger of these activities is not that they're inherently evil. There's nothing wrong with going to work. There's nothing wrong with being studious. There's nothing wrong with sleeping. There's nothing wrong with marrying or being given in marriage. There's nothing wrong with eating and drinking. The danger of these activities, which are not inherently evil, is that they might serve as diversions. They might end up distracting us away from what is most necessary, what is most important. From the necessity of one being on right terms with the God who made him. The necessity of one coming to brokenness over his sins and his need for a savior. You see, the danger of wealth is often... It's not that money is evil. Remember, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Very careful distinction here. Money is amoral, but when it grips our heart, it's so dangerous. That's the danger to the rich man. The reason why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because they can't get there off their money. And so what has to happen is God has to strip them of the love of money in order that the love of Christ would take over their affections. That's the only way that salvation will occur. And for that reason, sometimes the things of everyday life can be one of the, again, in and of itself, amoral. Not immoral, amoral. It's not good or bad, but when focused on entirely, it becomes a distraction away from that which is most important and absolutely necessary Beware of loving things of this world. Only one love will rule in your heart. There is only room for one ultimate love. There's only room for one. You will love many things, but there's only one thing that ultimately rules your heart. Jesus warned in Luke 16, No servant can serve two masters Either you will hate the one and love the other, or also be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now listen listen to the next, next verse. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at Him. And He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. God sees to our heart. He knows what really makes us tick. He knows what we love above all else. Everyone can come to church and put on the show, right? We can all go through the motions of church. We all go through the motions of worship. We all go through the motions of things. But what really rules in your heart? What does your heart love? If everything else would be stripped from you, what would make you content? If it's anything other than the Lord, you're in trouble. When things of this earth become ends in themselves and spiritual priorities are neglected, the things of this earth are no longer blessings. They're curses. They become evidence that our hearts are given over to materialism, greed, selfishness, and And my third malady? False security. False security. There are many who sleep comfortably in their beds, thinking themselves to be safe when they really are not. Jesus explains when the day of the Lord comes, two will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the same stone. One will be taken, the other left. Some manuscripts include, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other is left. By the way, that that verse is certainly in Matthew. So, it's just a question of whether or not Luke also has that phrase or not. That's the question there. But it is in Matthew's text. Pictured here are the closest of human relationships. In the first, I believe Jesus is picturing a married couple. The idea here is that one spouse is saved while the other is not. In the second and potential third illustrations... Jesus sets up an economic or business relationship of two women grinding at the same mill or two men working out in the same field. One is taken and the other is left. You see, Jesus is setting up relationships that are the closest sorts of relationships in earthly friendship terms. We have the relationship of marriage. We have the relationship of co-workers. One is saved, the other is not. How terribly often people believe themselves to be on right terms with God due to the fact that they have an association with a spouse who really loves Jesus. Or they know a pastor by, on a first name basis and so they think they're okay there. As long as he puts a good word in for them. Some believe that their father or their mother or their sister or their brother or a friend or a coworker, that because they have this, this friendship with this person that that must mean that they're okay also with God, but this is just a false security. Being nearby a Christian doesn't make you one. Any more than me being nearby an Olympian makes me one, right? I've heard it said before, just because you're in a garage doesn't make you a car, right? Just because you're around Christians doesn't mean that you yourself have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. And there's coming a day, C.S. Lewis It's a book called The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is that moment when the sheep and goats are separated. When eternity, the eternal destiny of all people is fixed. When all those who are in Christ and all those who are not in Christ are forever separated. Even the closest relationships will be severed on this basis. Husbands and wives, parents and children, the best of friends, business partners. The end of Luke 17 records to the disciples, they, they have a question for Jesus. They ask, Where, Lord? He's talking about all this judgment. Kind yeah, of interesting. I kind of chuckled about that. I was like, What kind of question is that? But then more I thought about it. I'm like, Well, you know, if someone's talking about judgments and all this stuff happening, people in the field, one taken, one's left, and all this destruction coming, it's not a completely unreasonable thing to ask. Well, where is that going to fall? <laughs> I'd like to not be there when that happens. I'd like to be gone from that area. Here the disciples say, Where, Lord? It's not an unreasonable question. But Jesus replies not so much with a where, but a who. He says, just as vultures congregate around dead bodies, so judgment will swoop down upon those who are, and I believe this is what he's saying, spiritually dead. The spiritually dead will see the judgment. The point is this, that God's judgment breaks inescapably, surprisingly, abruptly into the mundane life of people in their midst of working, in the midst of sleeping. And forever separates people on the basis of their status, whether they are in Christ or not. You see, there is no security, there is no insurance, there is no protection from the day of judgment unless you are found in Christ. Revelation describes the, this horrific scene where people are trying to shield themselves from the glory of God. They want the mountains to come down and cover them up. That they might not have to deal with God and all of His righteousness and holiness. So let's consider where hope is to be found. That's a pretty bleak picture, seemingly so, but there is hope to be found, and that's the glories of being able to share the Gospel with you this morning. Note three correctives. Note three correctives. First, short-sighted vision needs to be corrected with a vision of Christ. That nearsightedness needs to be corrected by getting a good seeing of Jesus. Jesus exposes the faulty presupposition that undergirds the Pharisees' question. They're looking for the kingdom in the wrong way. The kingdom of God is present already in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. God's kingdom is present in and through Jesus. That's why Jesus says, look here, look there, it's present in your midst. It's right here before you. And there is coming a day in which Jesus' kingship will be as evident as lightning streaking across the sky. But Jesus explains that there's something that has to happen first. There's something that must come first. Jesus says, it's necessary for me first to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In other words, Jesus is saying, everything is proceeding according to plan. You'd like to see that. But there's a grander plan here. Your vision is too small. Your your sight cannot conceive of the Son of God being incarnate and coming to earth, being born and laid in an animal's feeding trough, being raised in Nazarene, being rejected and despised by men, being ultimately abused, despised, forsaken, crucified. But Jesus says... Before this day where my my day, when lightning will strike across the sky and my glory will be manifest to all, before that day comes, there's something else that must happen first. Philip Ryken said it this way, in order to establish the kingdom of His grace, Jesus first had to die for sinners, taking upon Himself the judgment that our sins deserved. His kingdom could not come without the sufferings that would lead Him to the cross. Therefore, if people were looking for the kingdom of God, the first thing they would see, before that glorious vision, the first thing they would see was Christ crucified. Before I can show you that, I must first go to the cross. And it's the same for us. The kingdom only comes at the cost of His blood. And we can only enter the kingdom of God by trusting that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. You see, this is something unique to the privilege of our position in history in comparison with the disciples who were listening to Jesus' words on this occasion. We had the blessing of living after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So as we read this, we go, Yes! Hallelujah! Praise the Lord that first before that day came Jesus' death on a cross. Was there not a day of Jesus' death on the cross before that day? There'd be no hope for us. All there would be is flat judgment for all of us. We all deserve judgment. We all deserve hell. The wages of sin is death. And so when we see Jesus say, before that glorious day, there's another glorious moment. You're not going to quite get this yet. Many times Jesus announced before it ever happened what was coming for him, and disciples continue to scratch their heads. If we were there, we would have scratched our heads as well. What is he talking about? What does he mean? It wouldn't be until after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and His post-resurrection appearances, and then His ascension, and then the gift of the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples. At that moment, it all clicked. Glory! They recognized what Jesus was doing. They came to see with new eyes how glorious Christ's work really was. That short-sighted vision was expanded and exploded open as they saw Just how marvelous God's plan really is. You see, whenever we have moments of short-sightedness, let me encourage you to look to Jesus. Contemplate what He did from the perspective of His contemporaries at the moments in which they were happening. As Jesus is being crucified on the cross, the disciples are nervous wrecks. What on earth? What's going on? But after His resurrection... And His post-resurrection appearances and His ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit, those men who were so cowardly were filled with great boldness and power. Because they saw what God had accomplished in His Son. You see, we're going to encounter trials and difficulties in this life. It's right for us to say it's not something's wrong with the world. There is something wrong with the world. It's called sin. But there's a glorious reality that God's kingdom, on one level, is already here. And then, on another level, there's a day coming in which God will right all wrongs. In which He will turn His children's sadness to joy. And He will turn our mourning to rejoicing. There's going to be a time when all the years the locusts have eaten will be restored. Restored. And our God is so glorious that He doesn't merely do something glorious in spite of evil and hardships and trials, but He does something glorious through evil and hardships and trials. I.e., see the cross. Most heinous act ever done. And God receives glory through the thing. If He can do that with the cross, do you think He can do that with the trials and difficulties and hardships that we encounter day in, day out? As we await for that day when, like lightning across the sky, Jesus comes back. You see, we need to pray that God grant us eyes to see the glory of Christ and to view everything else through that sight, through that vision. We need our short-sighted vision corrected with a vision of Christ. Secondly, we need our fatal attraction to be swallowed up by an attraction to Christ. Understand that salvation doesn't come in a begrudging way. A person doesn't just go, oh, I I guess I'll come to Jesus. genuine salvation happens in such a way that God transforms the heart. He strips the heart of other affections and puts in its place affection for Jesus, affection for His Son. You see, everything will be going on as normal, and then the end will come. Only those who love Christ more than they love this world will be saved. Similarly, Only those who were in the ark, Noah and his family, were preserved from the flood. Only Lot and his daughters were preserved from the fire and brimstone that fell on Sodom. Neither Noah nor Lot were necessarily paragons of virtue. But both realized the catastrophe had come and they trusted in God's deliverance to save them. Both preached a coming judgment, but no one listened. You see, the gospel is not for those who think they deserve a better Outcome than their neighbors. The gospel is for those who in the midst of an indifferent world and in a complacent world realize that they themselves are in a desperate situation and they cry out to God trusting in God's means to save them. At issue here is the nature of one's commitment and your ultimate loyalty. Is it Christ or someone or something else? As Lot's wife illustrates, it's not merely your outward associations and actions that matter, but the condition of your heart. Who has your heart? Jesus tells His disciples, the days are coming, listen to this, in which you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. How is that possible? Unless their affections were tied to Jesus. They longed for Jesus. Jesus. They've longed to see their Savior. They longed to be with their Lord. When you wake up in the morning, is that your longing? Is your longing to see Jesus? Is your longing for His return? Are you able to identify with the statements in the Scripture Maranatha, our Lord, come? Do you feel that urgency? Do you want Him to come? Do you desire to be with Him? Do you anxiously await His return? Or do you think of things of this earth? Is your heart tied to things of this earth? You see, those whose hearts have been transformed, have been granted a love for Jesus, and out of that love, they'll give up their lives. They'll lay down their lives as Jesus did. And in so doing, they'll find true life. Ease will be given eternal life. Life which cannot die. Ironically, what Jesus ends up saying here is that the way to save your life is to lose it. It's those who sacrifice everything, laying down their lives in order to identify with Christ, who end up with life indeed. But this is only possible because Jesus first gave up His own life on our behalf and then rose triumphant over sin and death. That fatal attraction must be replaced with attraction to Christ. And the third correction is that our false security must be replaced with security in Christ. Our false security must be replaced with security in Christ. You see, while your security cannot rest in a relationship with family members or friends or co-workers, there is one association that will provide you with genuine security. There is one association, one relationship, which will grant you eternal security. And that is being in Christ. That makes sense. The difference. It's your association with Him that makes all the difference. Justin did a great job describing this in his sermon last week in Ephesians 2. There we saw the, the words, While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together, listen to this, with Christ, raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ, there he is. seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. How much more stress could be given to the text? Justin noted rightly. The important element there is, are you in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, then you're made alive in Him. You're raised up with Him. You're seated with Him in heavenly places. The person who's in Christ has security. The one who is not has just false security, if anything at all. You see, when we let go of what this world has to offer... To gain what only heaven can give, we make the best exchange imaginable. Because it profits little to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul. As Jim Elliot famously declared, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And by the way, there's a little debate about the language here. Who is the one taken and who is the one left? There's two in the field, one taken, one left. There's two in the bed, one taken, one left. There's two at the mill, one taken, one left. The a lot of debate. Is the, is the one taken, taken to judgment? Is the one taken, taken to salvation? A lot of discussion. Just for kicks, I lean in the direction of the one being taken as the one saved from judgment. The reason why I do that is a couple of reasons, mainly from Old Testament context. Um, in the era leading up to the flood, we read of a righteous man named Enoch who walked with God and was not because God took him. So that's one place where I think that it seems like he was transported to heaven or something of this nature. And so there are a lot of commentators that take this phrase, to take one, as being snatched away from their wicked surroundings, kind of like Lot was from Sodom, kind of like Noah was from the approaching flood. But the comparison might be that those who are in Christ are taken away from the final cataclysm it destroys the world before the glorious recreation of the new heavens and New Earth. Obviously, lots of discussion that could be had there. In conclusion, there are two reasons that may be proposed for not being obsessed with signs of the consummation of God's kingdom from this text. The first is this, that our focus needs to be upon the fact that the kingdom, in one sense, is already here. The kingdom is already here. And secondly, that the totality of the kingdom will come suddenly and unexpectedly not only see that in this text, but we read it this morning in Matthew 24, as well as 1 Thessalonians 5 in our scripture readings. Both of these reasons combine together to assert the importance of responding to the gospel right now. Spend your energy there. You can be transferred from the kingdom of the enemy into God's kingdom by believing in God's Son, Jesus Christ. The only way that you will share in the future consummation of God's kingdom is if you enter in now, in its present manifestation. If you reject King Jesus now, then you'll be judged and cast out of the kingdom that is yet to come. And while there is a stark division now between those who follow Christ and those who reject Him, the second coming of Christ will crystallize that division. The wheat will be separated from the tares. Those in Christ will be saved from the wrath to come. All those rejecting Christ will be condemned. Therefore, God is calling men everywhere to repent of their sin and trust in Christ that they might be saved. You see, only Jesus provides forgiveness of your sins because He died in the place of sinners as a substitute. And only His righteousness is able to stand before the righteousness of God. And Therefore, we need His righteousness because He lived the perfect life that none of us has. When Jesus returns, you'll want to be sure that you're on His side. Salvation we all need involves being granted a, a vision of Christ, which in turn births in us an attraction to Christ and guarantees us security in Christ. Let's be responsible citizens of the United States. Let's give thanks to God for the privilege of voting in elections. Let's do our homework and find out what candidates believe and how, what they think is true and good and beautiful. Let's pray for our governmental leaders that they be saved, and that they rule with sound judgments and wisdom. But most of all, let's be people who see the splendor of Jesus, who love Him with all of our heart and trust wholeheartedly in Him to save us. And let's get passionate then to share the glor- this glorious news of the Gospel with others. Here is the truest freedom of all and the best message for Pulpit Freedom Sunday and every other Sunday as well. In fact, there is no message better suited Not only for the church pulpit, but also for the workplace water cooler, the school classroom, the community playground, the athletic sports fields, the Facebook wall, and the family dinner table. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we delight ourselves in Your Son. We are so thankful that in the lives of those who have been redeemed, You have stripped from us the way in which our heart was so attuned to things of this world and so intent on things of this world. And you have changed our heart's affections. You have given us a love for your Son. And from that, we long for His return. But in the meantime, may we be found faithful servants of yours, proclaiming the message of the good news. We know that it is by your sheer mercy and grace that you prolong your return any one moment. We know that it is allowing for more men and women who are lost in their sins and dead in their sins to come to life in Christ. So we pray that You would even use these few moments, maybe right now, to bring someone to salvation. Help them to recognize that they cannot trust in false securities. They can't trust in someone else they know who's a Christian, but they themselves must repent. They themselves must believe in Your Son if they're to have hope in the coming judgment. And help us to be faithful Stewards of this message. Lord, may you be glorified through the salvation of sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.